What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. A new report has been released demonstrating the benefit to the Hotels for Homeless program enacted in San Francisco during the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us to discuss are Dr. Elizabeth Abs, one of the authors of a study that, that showed the benefits of the program. She is also a primary care doctor at Tom Waddle Urban Health Center in the Tenderloin. Good morning, Dr. Abs. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. We are also joined by Chu Sing Jange, a data reporter with the San Francisco-based independent newsroom Mission Local. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start, Dr. Abs, and and um, feel free to jump in, Chu Sing, uh, with the conditions that led to the Hotels for the Homeless program. This was a direct result of the COVID-19 pandemic, but can you sort of walk us through the escalating concern of the vulnerability of this population that sort of culminated when there was that big outbreak in the unhoused shelter? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it did start with the outbreak in the shelter, but more than that, there was a, a great desire to reduce the overload on the hospitals. And as we know, um, people experiencing homelessness often use emergency services uh, to access basic needs. And so the intent of, of rapidly moving people into housing was to protect the emergency services for people who had COVID-19 who needed uh, more um, immediate uh, uh, urgent care. And so this was kind of this large social experience in which San Francisco immediately poured money to house people. And it it really showed a blueprint of, of how to provide mass housing quite quickly. But it wasn't just like the government didn't just wake up and be like, oh, we need to do this. One of the things that you highlight and that's highlighted in the article and also highlighted in the report you put out was that it was sort of a culmination of pressure from different sectors. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like, as you're saying, the um, MSC South had an outbreak and there was this concern that there would be a a mass spread of COVID-19 among people who are homeless living in congregated locations such as shelter on the street. And so that is what helped move things um, into the hotels uniquely. But I I would say part of the the major pressure was trying to offload the hospitals and and protect people. But it it was sort of this brewing of, of various pressures that did take place. Interesting. I want to walk through some of the the data that you pulled out. Can you talk about the demographics of San Francisco's unhoused population, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think this program like started in April 2020, and it provide like um, two thousand two hundred eighty eight rooms across twenty five sites, and um, they do have a dashboard um, from Department of Homeless and Supportive. Um, they do have a dashboard about like where did people go after that program. So according to their dashboard, there is like total of um, around 4,000 people experiencing homelessness um, enter that program. And after that, over half of them were transitioned to department housing. This is part of um, the study that this program can actually um, be beneficial for um, those outsh- unsheltered population to provide them like a transition to um, permanent housing. So um, I got the data from 
um, the Department of Homeless and Supportive Housing and um, turn them into like a, a, a graphic for reader to understand the outcome. Uh, it's kind of like the evaluation of the social experiment, just as Dr. App said, without those pressures under COVID-19, it can't be so fast, this program. Chuching, a couple follow-up questions. You said almost half landed in permanent housing. What happened to the rest yep. of the folks? Um, others, uh, like other access, including um, the temporary shelter, some of them went to the navigation center or except by their choices or like they just abandoned the bed. Um, some others uh, in, uh, includes like um, they just died in the shelters or... Um, they were like drove out because of they breaking the rules of the shelters. There are like fifteen uh, percent of them going to the temporary shelter afterwards, and the rest of them are like either diseased or um, like exit like voluntarily. And when we say permanent housing, are we talking about in the city of San Francisco? Are we talking outside of the city of San Francisco? Has there been any tracking of whether or not those folks are still inside of that housing? Um, there are several like, permanent housing programs. Um, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I can speak to that. I have many patients who um, were in the shelter-in-place hotels. And, and part of the reason in my um, experience some people did end up leaving is this is a cohort of people who have been, uh, you know, misled by the system various times where they've been, you know, brought to coordinated entry, put on a list, told they're going to get a voucher for housing, and then it not coming through. And so when London Breed promised to house everyone who was in the shelter-in-place hotels in to permanent housing, there was quite a lot of disbelief and some people gave up. Um, although those who held on uh, or who were steadfast in meeting with social work did get into permanent supportive housing. And many of those buildings are, are beautiful new buildings with a kitchen and a bathroom and an elevator, realistically much better than the, the housing that other, um, other folks are living in that are it's considered the permit supportive housing, meaning that there's a nurse on site, there's a social worker, there's a case manager. And so majority of these sites are are wonderful places and, and have met the needs of people. It's been a, a real victory for people who've gotten in. Thank you, Dr. Abs. Chutsing, you wanted to add something to, to, to that question? Um, oh, just that. Oh yeah, sorry guys. No. Go ahead, go ahead, no worries. Chutsing, you want to add something to the answer to that question, and then I'll come back to you, Dr. Abs. Thanks. Oh yeah, sure. Um, so I think the permanent housing they do have like different categories, including um, the rapid rehousing, or some of them like reunited with friends or family, or like served through problem solving. So there are like different projects to transition to transit them from like temporary hotels to the permanent housing. That's what I want you to add. Thank you. D Dr. Abs. there's a graph at, at the top of the report that you all released, and I'm wondering if you can walk us through this statement. The graph looks at the ways in which, and these are your, the words in the report, the social and historical impact of structural racism in San Francisco affects the health and wellness of people experiencing homelessness. Can you talk about that and then break it down by demographics, specifically talking about black folks? Absolutely. Um, well, so I, I think that 
is something to, to be well aware of is that people experiencing homelessness, uh, there's a small percentage of, of people within the city of San Francisco who identify as people of color or, or black African American, but the percentage of people experiencing homelessness is way more, it's, it's much more disproportionate. And so we cannot talk about you know, some of these experiences of housing and injustice without backing up and realizing the generational racism and its impact on the trauma and poverty of, 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 of people of color in our country, particularly of, of black people who have faced incarceration, trauma, poverty that limit their, their resources and their opportunities for housing over and over again. And I think, you know, we can talk more about uh, drug use and drug supply, but as the war on drug continues and its relationship with incarceration, that means incarceration of many black and brown bodies, this cycle continues. And so people are no longer eligible for housing. They're no longer eligible for vocational and educational opportunities. And so this idea of, you know, just pull yourself back up, it, it's not a reality in our society. And so this continues to bring people down and, and allow them to be stuck in the cycle of homelessness and poverty. And you do talk about that some in your report, Dr. Abs, the impact that the virus had on um, drug use and drug supply. Can you tug on that thread a little bit more for my listeners? Yeah, so, you know, it was it was an uh, unfortunate uh, time of concurrent events, right? Um, the fentanyl at that time had sort of spiked within the drug supply a couple years prior to COVID, and um, people uh, were isolated uh, behind closed doors for the first time, fracturing their their tools that they use of reducing overdose, the community reliance of of checking on your on your on your friend, on your neighbor. And so um, overdoses increased dramatically, uh, all presumably linked to fentanyl um, because of people's lack of tolerance, them using alone, unknown um, you know, contaminants or exposure within stimulants and other drug supplies. And that isolation and boredom uh, within the hotels behind closed doors was sort of that ripe um, trigger and ingredient for people to to uh, be at risk. Interesting. You mentioned in your article, Emission Local, that there was a study that found that the number of fatal overdoses among people experiencing homelessness uh, during COVID doubled. Can you talk about the data that you pulled out regarding Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, sure. So um, there were stories um, like before blaming the hotel. There were so many like overdose rate that is among the first few months um, during the program. Um, but actually, like, um, like, in general, like the total number of overdoses doubled during the pandemic. It's not necessarily happened in those sheltered hotels. And actually like compared to other like unsheltered population, actually the house hotels can actually decrease or like not decrease. Like there are actually several times more overdoses for people who are unsheltered on the street than in shelters. So we can't just blame that because of those unsheltered, because of those sheltered hotels, uh, we see like there are so many overdose deaths. We can just blame the the project. So what I want to like stress here is that um, you can see that the unfortunately the just like Dr. App said the 
fentanyl crisis was at the same time with COVID, which is really unfortunate. But we can just like link the unsheltered um, the the shelter in place hotel with the overdose deaths. That's what I want to say. Like pulling out those other studies and other findings to provide like a a, a more a larger picture of of the crisis. And Dr. Abbs, not for nothing. I mean, this isn't part of the study, but we're talking about substance use with the unhoused. But it, it's true that across the country, housed or unhoused, uh, the utilization of substances during COVID nineteen and being isolated increased for everybody. Correct. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, people were feeling desperate and isolated and bored, and and those are major triggers for for using drugs, either for pleasure or distraction or you know, coping with other traumas. One of the beautiful things both uh, highlighted in the article and your report is some of the commentary from the support staff, nurses, et cetera, that were on site during the Hotels for the Homeless program. And um, Chitsing, I can start with you, but then I want to go to you, Dr. Abs. Can you pull out some of the, the oh, I always get it wrong because I'm not a scientist. I, I think that's the qualitative data, <laughs> the the actual experience of, of the folks that were supporting the unhoused during this program. Yes, absolutely. And I will say my um, my colleague, Naomi Schoenfield, also did interviews. And so there's more qualitative data to be published in the future. This um, data uh, in the article is from a focus group with nurses. And um, I can read a quote that I think is, is really wonderful. And in kind of the background here is that this Staff, many of the nurses that got pulled into the shelter-in-place hotels were already in, um, employed as as nurses in um, the congregate shelter settings or in street medicine, and so many of them knew these clients for a long time and were really connected uh, to their trajectory. And so, uh, one nurse shared, "It was kind of like bittersweet. Clients they finally got I hate using the word housed, but they were behind closed doors." And then within the first two weeks, they got to feel that joy, that comfort, and then they pass away because of an overdose. We were just getting our feet wet. It was a lot of trial and error. A lot of the deaths did not stop for a good while until we kind of got some semblance of harm reduction on site. And I think that's something to really speak of. I think a lot of the initial news of, of the, the overdose deaths within the shelter-place hotels were shocking because these were people that um, were well known uh, to the community and really beloved, and and very quickly, um, as you know, almost as quickly as as these deaths were noted, uh, the the staff started to react and do things differently. Right, there were harm reduction kits, naloxone on every floor. There were wellness checks. Uh, which clients didn't always appreciate because it was a little bit intrusive of their privacy for sure. But wellness checks uh, for people who were using opioids knowingly uh, to make sure that they, you know, weren't alone and and hadn't used. There was passing out of numbers people could call so they could be on a anonymous 1-800 number when using to to make sure nothing happened. And there was even this um, lower barrier outreach of people who wanted to be on buprenorphine, which is a medication for opioids use disorder and coordination with a, a local pharmacy to start delivering the medication to people in the site, uh, which is, is just really wonderful. Chit saying anything you want to add there? 
Yeah, I would say those quotes and those interaction between the um, shelter staff and um, the unhoused population, the interaction, like the the conversation, really add texture and color to the data itself. You can say that people are trying to help other people to, um, like, get permanent housing or get help, medical helps. Um, it really, um, it's really touching uh, and at more texture to my article too. Dr. Ebbs, uh, San Francisco was the first city to do this during the pandemic is my understanding. Did this type of program spread to other cities in the country and what do we know about outcomes there? Did they mirror outcomes in San Francisco? Great question. Um, it did It did spread and it did happen in various other cities. I think that other places had sort of a similar uh, sort of, of reaction and, and positive um, net effect in which people were connected to care. I don't know the specifics in other programs, but certainly in Boston and New York, um, there, there were similar initiatives. And, you know, I, I think one piece of this is that by uh, reducing stigma and shame around substance use and providing the dignity of housing, people were able to connect to services and remain a part of a, a, a healthcare community, many of them to this day. Singh, in your research, did you look at programs anywhere else outside of San Francisco? Um, wait, can you repeat that question again? Sorry. In your research, did you look? Uh, did you pull data from any programs outside of the city of San Francisco? Um, no, I haven't. I just look at the the city's data because during COVID nineteen, like different cities respond differently to um, the crisis. So I only look at the data in the city. Dr. Ebbs, San Francisco, just like my my town, Oakland, right? We're we're still experiencing high rates of the unhoused crisis. The response from cities here and in San Francisco seems to be now, you know, to return back to you mentioned, you know, the continuation of the war on drugs, a violent sweep mm-hmm. of uh, encampments, um, which we know just does not work. What? What, in terms of the outcomes of the the study of the Hotels for Homeless program, should be informing policy and practice for San Francisco and other cities across the country, for that matter, in humanely addressing the crisis of unhoused folks? Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you for that question. You know, I think humanely is the number one thing. I think the first thing is the humanization of people experiencing homelessness, knowing that in this city where uh, rent is high and we we are all one step away from having that experience, right? There's not a big safety net work here. And so realizing that this pathway is both common and easily uh, enterable, right? There's so many variables there. And so I think what we need is a, a pathway to support a community. That means number one, increased access to housing. Realistically in San Francisco, there's all these vacant open buildings. We know we have the housing. We're just not putting people into them. And then Number two, our lessons learned with that quick response from the city of providing harm reduction. But I would take it further. We need safe drug supply. This war on drugs and criminalization is just a cycle that makes people have to do desperate things for survival, right? And so legalization and regulation of the drug supply is is key and is, is documented in many other countries, in Portugal and Switzerland, and even in Canada, where people are treated with dignity and criminalization reduces dramatically. And so we have a lot of improvement to, to make here.
Jude Singh, how would you like to see the data that you've pulled um, in foreign policy and practice in the city of San Francisco? Um, I would say, like, there are two sides. Like, only one side, the medical, um, like, the health benefits is clear um, based on what uh, Dr. Abb said. But on the other hand, we have to say that this program is costly. And uh, there are so many hotels who are trying to uh, get money for the damage um, they caused during this program from the city. Um, So I feel like it's really hard to make a conclusion right now. We're waiting for more studies and more evaluation about the project during the COVID, uh, which is like a social experiment. And of course, we have to advocate for more affordable housing to provide more um, shelters and opportunities for the unhoused population. That is like for sure. But uh, we have to figure out like what's um, the best way to achieve that goal. It's not just like we turn all the offices or the, all the hotels into um, shelters. That's not. It's not that simple. That's what I would say. We are waiting for more like studies like that to kind of evaluate the whole process. Dr. Abb is someone on the ground doing this work. I'm going to give you the, the, the final word here. I, I was going to get to funding. My listeners know that my answer is going to be stop giving militarized police officers millions of dollars to terrorize the announced. But <laughs> from your per- as a doctor, uh, how do we move forward? Um, and I would say one, one thing on the cost is that, you know, it, it is costly, but it's also costly to, to pay for the hospitalizations and rehospitalizations for people who are presenting for the sequelae related to their homelessness and their poverty. And so we're already paying this money. It's just looking, you know, it's going to different places. And so I, I think that we need all hands on deck here. This is not something um, that should only be managed by um the medical system and government. We we need you know tech, we need buy-in from all forces to 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 realize that there there needs to be kind of a a restructuring of our entire system to, as you said, humanely treat this problem because it, it is deeply rooted and there's far better things that we can be doing to to improve the lives and um, and safety of of people. In our on our streets in our in our communities couldn't agree more i want to thank you both so much for joining me this morning thank, thank you, you so much appreciate it you've been listening to law and disorder a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system agitate for resistance and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive that's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.